And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished, for every good work. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we are prepared for the study of His Word through the filling of God the Holy Spirit. We do that by making sure that we are in fellowship. The Proverbs and uh, the psalmist said that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So in order to make sure that we have dealt with any unconfessed sin, we always give everybody a few moments of privacy at the beginning of class give you a few moments of silent prayer so that if necessary, you can confess any sins, make sure that you're in fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, so we can take in God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for the incredible privilege we have as church-age believers to sit here together and to study your word. We have the completed canon of scripture, your complete and sufficient revelation to us to teach us all that we need to know, and through it you have provided the information that we need so that we can have the maximum in life and happiness during this life. Now, Father, as we study your word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we're studying, that we might be challenged by them, that we might be motivated to continue our spiritual growth, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And we are continuing our study of the Good Shepherd Discourse. John chapter 10. And we are down to about verse 10 or 11. Let's see. John chapter 10. And we are down to about verse 11. We got down to the first part of verse 11 during the last hour. Now, last night while I was... Driving, I just love it when friends of mine decide to visit me from Houston and catch the, uh, everybody wants to fly the nonstop. And the only nonstop from Houston to Hartford leaves Houston at 6.30 and gets in at 11.30. So it's always a great encouragement for me to have to take my Saturday evening and go pick up friends at the airport. But I utilize the time, as you should, effectively, 
and I meditated on the Scriptures. You know, it's always important for us to read the Scriptures. In fact, one of the things I thought about while I was on my way to Hartford is to encourage you to be reading through the passages that we're studying on Sunday morning. Galatians 5, John 10. You can, at the rate at which we're going, you could read the Gospel of John several hundred times before we finish. But you can read through John 10 again and again each week, and that would help you to get even more out of what we are teaching on Sunday morning. And so I would encourage you to do that. And the more you think about these things and you see these relationships within the Scripture, it's amazing what God the Holy Spirit will bring to mind. And last night I, I was thinking about this passage in particular as I was driving to Hartford, and I began to think about its relationship to the context. Because so often we get so focused on studying the trees that we lose sight of the forest. And we don't understand where we're going with all of this. And we also have the unfortunate problem of dealing with the way they have uh, placed the chapters in our English Bible. Remember in the original Greek text of the New Testament, there not only weren't any verses, there weren't any chapters. And the chapters were added early in the Middle Ages. Verses weren't added until the... uh, I think it was Stephen's third edition of the Greek text in 1556, somewhere thereabouts. But they should not have broken this chapter where they did at 10.1. Because the episode actually begins in 9. That would be a good place to, to put a chapter break. And it ends at verse 21 of chapter 10. All of this is one episode. But when you come in and you break the chapter where they do, it makes it appear as if these are somehow disjointed events. And they're really not. And I want to go back and just give you an overview of where we have come in our study of John. Because all of these events take place in a very short period of time. We saw all the way back in John chapter 7 that Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the the, uh, last feast from the Old Testament festival calendar of Israel, And it occurs in the late fall sometime, late November, early December, just prior to the Feast of Dedication, which is mentioned later in John 10 at the end of this chapter down in verse 22. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem for this week-long Feast of Booze, and there's this confrontation with the Pharisees in, in, in the temple area. Now here is the temple area in Jerusalem. Is that up high enough on the overhead for you? This is the temple area. Here's the temple itself right here. This is the uh, laver, or the bronze altar rather, out in front. And it faces due east. And all of these events of chapter 7 occur inside the temple. And then you have the last day of the Feast of Booths. And then early the next morning, Jesus comes back to the temple. And this is when the Pharisees brought the woman caught in adultery. And we saw that this exemplified the theme of John at this point, that it involves a lot of legal uh, terminology because the whole of John is a presentation of facts, a, a witness. It's like a courtroom scene. And you have Jesus representing God and the Pharisees representing man, and you see the confrontation between the two. And it culminates in this whole issue with the woman at the well because there we see in that one episode that the Pharisees could really care less about the people. They could even care less about the law. They care more about their own power base and their own legalistic structure 
and making sure that their rules are followed and they really don't care about the woman. They just want to catch Jesus in something wrong. So we see that the Feast of Booths ended and then early the next morning, Jesus is right in this area here when he's teaching the people and they bring to him the woman caught in adultery. We have that episode and when it ends... He sends her away, go and sin no more. And then he's walking out, but as she leaves and departs, he's here. I can't keep it steady enough. She's going out this gate, the gate beautiful. And as she's leaving, it's early in the morning, and she's walking into the sunrise. And as the sun comes up, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. That's the theme of all of these chapters. Again and again, this theme, even through to chapter 11, with Lazarus being raised from the dead, we'll see another mention of Jesus being the light of the world. And so all that, that, that idea that Jesus is the light, He is the one who, who gives truth. Light has to do with revelation, the revelation of God breaking in upon man. And what is it that John told us as he foreshadowed this theme back in John chapter 3? The light came to men, but men loved the darkness rather than the light. And see, what we see again and again is John demonstrating for us this theme that they have all the evidence they want, but because of negative volition to God, man is continually set his heart in negative volition against God and is rejecting this claim. They have everything in front of him. They have all the miracles of Christ, the healings, all the evidence that he is the Messiah right before their face, yet continually they put blinders on and they reject it. Why? Because of the orientation of their volition. They are rejecting doctrine. And so when Jesus looks to the east, the sun's coming up, and he says, I am the light of the world, and we get the light of the world discourse, and we see the challenge with the Pharisees, and at the end of that discourse, at the end of chapter 8, Jesus comes to the crescendo there in his argument where he, he confronts the Pharisees, with his eternality, and they say, well, how do you know Abraham? You're you're, you're a young man. How did you know Abraham? And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And his shift in tenses emphasizes his eternality, his use of the term I am. The Greek or the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, means I am that I am, indicates a claim to deity, and they begin to pick up stones to stone him. And in the confusion, he walks out, walks through the crowd, and he walks out the gate. And as he walks out the gate here and down through Solomon's portico, and he's walking this way along the portico, there is a blind beggar. And to make sure everybody gets the point he just made, that I am the light of the world and you can only see truth through me, he heals the blind man who's blind from birth. Now, the Pharisees completely reject that, and we see how they brought this poor blind beggar after he has recovered his sight on trial, and they reject his testimony. They intimidate his parents, who they bring forth as witnesses, because their ultimate goal is to discredit Christ. What's the point? The point is the light has shined forth, and men love the darkness rather than the light. It's the orientation of negative volition. The issue is not how intelligent men are. The issue is not how much facts they have about Jesus. The issue is not the clarity of revelation. The issue is volition. 
And as Paul says in Romans 1, 19 and following, men on negative volition reject the truth and they have more than enough evidence. It's not that they need, okay, prove to me that God exists. The Scripture says they already have enough evidence. The heavens declare the, declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth His handiwork in Psalm 19. They rejected, they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And so Jesus is making this clear. And this, this blind man's not even a believer yet. And at the end, he comes to Jesus and he says to him at the end of John chapter 9, uh, he's wanting to know who Jesus really is. And Jesus makes the gospel very clear to him, says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, everything in the Good Shepherd discourse of chapter 10 is a commentary, is Jesus' explanation of what just happened in John 9. If you don't understand John 9, you're not, and what happens there, you're going to make serious mistakes in interpreting what Jesus says about the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10. Because he is going to explain in this whole Good Shepherd analogy that he and he alone is the Good Shepherd of Israel. He is the one who who enters by the door, the door being the legitimate way that the shepherd enters the sheepfold. And he enters legitimately, and the entrance is the incarnation. He was born in Bethlehem. He is a descendant of David. He, he went to Egypt. He fulfilled all these Old Testament. He enters legitimately into the sheepfold, but the Pharisees are like thieves and robbers. And they come in an illegitimate way. They want to climb over the wall, and they're in it for their own glory and what they're going to get out of it, and they could care less about the sheep. And we saw that illustrated in the way the Jews, the religious leaders, demonstrated their complete lack of care, lack of compassion, lack of concern for the blind man. Here's this poor blind man, congenitally blind, having to beg for a living, and miraculously his sight is restored, and they could care less. They're more concerned that their petty law from Mishnah 7, what was it, Tractate Shabbat 7-2, that their petty laws and regulations and interpretations of the Mosaic Law have been violated. They don't care about him at all. They don't have a concern for the sheep, so they don't have a legitimate basis for claiming to be the leaders in Israel. Now, when Jesus makes this statement, he is, comes out here, he heals the man here, and then the man goes away, and the rest of that morning, remember, all this happens in one morning. Early in the morning, just at dawn, is when he healed, when he, when he, there's a woman in a con adultery here. And then as he goes out later in the morning, 9, 10 o'clock in the morning, he heals the blind man. Then the rest of the morning you have the blind man going down all the way down here to the pool of Siloam where he washes down here and then he, go, he make, makes it all this way blind, washes off his eyes, restored sight, comes back up here, is interrogated by the disciples, uh, or, excuse me, interrogated by the Pharisees, and then finally finds his way back to Jesus who's probably in this vicinity and it's later in the afternoon. So the thing that you miss from reading the text is that all this is occurring in one day. And it is an intensifying confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now last time we ended in verse 11 with Jesus' statement that I am the Good Shepherd. Now he is making a claim to be the Good Shepherd and this is clearly a statement 
of his Messiahship. He is, he is building on what was said about uh, in the Old Testament that Yahweh is the shepherd of Israel in Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the false leaders of the uh, uh, the leaders of the people were called false shepherds because they led people away from the true worship of the Lord. And so Jesus is claiming that in contrast to the Pharisees, he is the good shepherd and they have no legitimate right to lead the people. And so we came to the good shepherd and I summarized the doctrine of the relationship of sheep to the shepherd. And I want to review that in case you didn't get it last time. First of all, the Scripture uses sheep as an illustration of the believer. This is not a compliment. If any of you have ever worked with sheep, they are some of the dumbest animals around. And they can be filthy, and they can be very obstinate. And so, just like many believers, just like us, God God created that animal to illustrate to us what we are like at times. First of all, a sheep has no sense of direction. Unlike a cat or a dog or other animals, they can't find their way home. So it is with the believer. He cannot guide himself, but must rely exclusively upon the guidance of the shepherd. We rely exclusively on the guidance of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has revealed his thinking, revealed his will to us in the Bible. So if we study the Bible, we can be guided, and when we are not in the Word, We are not being guided by truth. Secondly, a sheep cannot cleanse himself. Some animals will clean themselves, but sheep cannot. This is true of believers. We cannot cleanse ourselves from sin. Only the Lord can cleanse the believer. And he does so when we confess our sins. You see, one of the greatest truths of Scripture has to do with salvation and confession. At the point of the cross, God the Father in His omniscience took every single sin in human history. Every single sin you've ever committed. All those terrible things that load you with guilt. All those things that you're ashamed of. Every single sin, no matter how horrible it might be, God the Father took every one of them because in His omniscience He knew every single sin. And He poured that out on Jesus Christ. So there is no single sin in human history that is not paid for by Christ on the cross. There is no sin that you have ever committed that is too great for the grace of God. It was all paid for at the cross. Now, when you trust Christ as your Savior, you are saved from all and forgiven of all pre-salvation sins. But what happens after salvation? When you commit a sin after salvation, you are out here in what the Bible calls carnality. You're no longer filled with God the Holy Spirit. You don't lose your salvation, but you're walking in the power of the sin nature, This Galatians 5 says, not in the power of the Holy Spirit. To recover, all you have to do is use 1 John 1.9. You simply admit to God. You don't have to feel sorry for it. Because what happens when you're trying to feel sorry for it is you're saying, God, I'm going to impress you that I feel sorry for what I've done. But God's not impressed because God knows in his omniscience that you're going to commit that same sin again in five minutes or five hours or five days. And no matter how sincere you might think you are at the moment, God knows better. 
The issue is not how you feel about it. The issue is that Jesus Christ paid for that in full at the cross. And because it's paid for in full, all you have to do is simply admit it to God. God, I did this or I did that. And you are instantly cleansed. The slate is wiped clean. The Old Testament Scripture says that your sins are removed as far from us as the east is from the west. And God says, and I will remember your sin no more. It's forgotten. What happens then is we dredge it up feeling guilty about it. And we're basically saying, it wasn't enough, Lord. That's why guilt is wrong. Guilt is blasphemy. Guilt is saying, the cross wasn't enough. I have to add to it by my guilt feelings. Guilt is saying, it's not really forgiven until I feel bad about it. So, guilt, guilt then gets us back out into carnality and we have to confess the sin. We're back in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, so that we can go forward. The Lord cleanses us. All we have to do is admit it to God the Father, and we are instantly cleansed of sin. Point number three, a sheep is helpless when injured. A hurt sheep will die unless he's tended by the shepherd. In the same way, when we are injured by the adversities and problems in life, only the Lord can provide the necessary protection and cure, and that comes through Bible doctrine. Psalm 23.1 says that the Lord is our shepherd, I shall have no need. He is sufficient for us. We don't need humanistic psychology. We don't need a lot of uh, psychobabble. We don't need to get in touch with our inner child. We need to learn Bible doctrine and apply it consistently. The reason Bible, doesn't, uh, Bible doctrine doesn't seem to work for a lot of people is because they don't really take the time to learn it and to use it exclusively. They're always compromising it with something else. Point number four, a sheep cannot protect himself. He's too slow to run away from his attackers. He has no natural camouflage to hide himself. He has no natural defenses. The only protection for the sheep is the shepherd. The battle is the Lord's. He is our armor. Point number five, a sheep cannot find food or water on his own. While most animals can smell water, a sheep depends on the shepherd to lead him to water. If he is not led to proper food, he will eat poisonous weeds and other things that are not nutritious, and he will die. So from this we learn that it is the Lord, our shepherd, who determines what, we, what it is needed for us to eat and what is not needed for us. And so what he has revealed to us in the scripture is sufficient. Now, there are many questions we ask. There are many things that we might speculate on. But God has told us what we need to know, not necessarily what we think in our arrogance we ought to know or what we would like to know out of idle curiosity. So the scripture is sufficient. God tells us what we need and has provided what we need for our spiritual nourishment. Point number six, a sheep is easily frightened or panicked. So the shepherd must calm the sheep with songs in the night. In the same way, when we go through life and we want to panic, we want to be afraid, we want to worry, all of a sudden we feel like life's out of control. It is the shepherd who calms us through the promises of God's word. When you latch onto those promises and mix them with faith, then it stabilizes your emotions. Point number seven. A sheep's wool does not belong to the sheep. Sheep produce wool, but the shepherd owns it. So all legitimate spiritual production in the Christian life belongs to the Lord. He is the one who is glorified. It is not up to us. We do not claim 
the glory for it. And then eight. This is a new one from our very own resident ex-shepherd who wants to remain nameless. When a sheep becomes ill, he loses the will to recover. Frequently, once a sheep becomes ill, they don't fight. They just give up. And this happens frequently in a believer's life. When they, the further they go into extended carnality, the more they go into spiritual lethargy and lose all motivation towards spiritual recovery and growth. The sheep that recovers does so because he exercises his volition, his will to recover. The shepherd can't make the sheep want to recover. In the same way, God is not going to violate your volition and reach inside and tweak it so that you will want to recover. He gives you the freedom to succeed and the freedom to fail. And if you fail, it's because you choose to and you will suffer the loss of reward and the loss of inheritance as we have seen in the first hour. So Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, in contrast to the, this whole contrast in 11 through 13, it's going to contrast the good shepherd with the hireling. The hireling is the religious leaders, the Pharisees. The good shepherd will sacrifice for the sheep, but the hireling runs away when danger presents itself. Verse 12, He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Now, there's a lot of interesting things we might do with this analogy. I've even heard somebody suggest that, that the wolf represents the Roman Empire because, of course, Romulus and Remus were brought up as wolf's cubs, and so the wolf was a symbol of Rome. And, of course, eventually Rome was to attack Jerusalem. They would go out under discipline in 70 A.D., and the Pharisees just scattered and did nothing to protect the people. While all of that is true, I think that's pushing the analogy too far. That's what happens. We're going to see another example of what happens in this whole shepherd motif of how it is pushed too far to teach the heretical doctrine of of, uh, limited atonement, that Christ died only for the sheep. This is merely an illustration. And the point of the illustration is what Jesus says it is, In verse 13, that is that the hireling flees because he is a hireling and he's not concerned with the sheep. That's the whole point here, is that the Pharisees aren't concerned with the sheep. Look at how how, what a lack of compassion they had towards the healing of the blind man. They're not concerned with the sheep. That's the point. It's not, don't try to figure out who's the wolf and who's this and who's that. The point is, go back to chapter 9. The Pharisees don't care about the people. They just care about themselves and what they can use the people for in terms of their own power base and their own approbation. But we've skipped an important phrase we need to go back to. Now that we've picked up the overall point of 11 through 13, let's see the significant doctrine at the end of chapter, um, end of verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this phrase, for the sheep, is a translation of the Greek preposition, huper. Looks like this in the Greek, H-U-P-E-R. 
And when you have huper followed by a noun or pronoun in the genitive, this is a genitive of advantage, what this means is that Christ died as a substitute. This is the preposition of substitution. Substitution for the benefit of someone. And so it should be translated, the good shepherd lays down his life as a substitute for the benefit of the sheep. Now this is going to introduce to us the all-important doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. Now just a word about nomenclature here and the words. Penal here means that it's a penalty. Jesus Christ paid a penalty on the cross. Substitutionary talks about its nature. It was in a substitute for us in our place so that the sheep would not have to die. He died. And atonement summarizes all that is involved in the nature of that atonement. But we have to ask some basic questions when we come to this text. The good shepherd lays down his life. What kind of life did Jesus lay down for us on the cross? So in order to understand this, let's break it down into several points. Point number one asks the question, what is the consequence? What is the penalty for sin? Is it spiritual death or is it physical death? Spiritual death or physical death? Was it Jesus' physical death on the cross that paid the penalty for our sins, or did He die for our sins spiritually? What is the issue? To understand this, we have to go back to the very beginning of the Bible. If you do not take Genesis 1 through 11, pay attention to this. If you do not take Genesis 1 through 11 literally, then you need to throw out the rest of your Bible. Everything in the Bible from Genesis chapter 12 through Revelation 22, is based upon the literal reality of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. That's why there's such a battleground. That's why there is such an enormous warfare going on about origins, evolution versus creation. And that is why there is such, such emotion involved with, in, in that whole battle. Is because if you can destroy the credibility of the first 11 chapters of Genesis then you destroy the credibility of the rest of the Bible. And the evolutionist knows that. And it is a, that's why evolution, and you can trace it back. We have a scientific explanation now since the middle of the 19th century. But the basic underlying concepts of evolutionary theory, which is based on the natural generation, everything originating from chaos by chance, has its roots in all pagan mythology from the ancient Babylonians, uh, Assyrians, Sumerians, all of them have the same basic cosmogony. And they all start off with, with matter existing, matter eternal, and then it is springing forth from matter, self-generating matter. You develop from this chaos the various gods. But the gods are physical. 
And if you look at the, the mythology, it is the gods that do battle, and usually one god or another is killed and their body is severed, and it is from their material body that the universe is made. And th- this is just a mythological explanation, the same thing we have a scientific explanation for in evolution. It's all part of the angelic conflict to discredit the beginning of the Bible. But we have to take the beginning literally, and we go to Genesis chapter 2 to understand the nature of this death. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 9 we read, And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God created, when He created the earth, there is this incredible garden. And God provides everything for man's sustenance. God, in grace, always provides everything. That's why we emphasize the sufficiency of Scripture. God, in His grace, always provides everything that man needs. So He provides all of the, all of the food that man needed in the garden. And, and skip down to Genesis 2:16 and 17, and we read of the one prohibition, the one test. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for, notice the phrase, in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now let's pay attention to some details here so we can properly interpret the text. First of all, you have the phrase, in the day. Looks like this in the Hebrew. But yom. This is the preposition ba, be, should be translated in. And this is the word yom, y-o-m, meaning day. So, here, as through much of this passage, when you have a phrase like this, the day should be translated and understood as a literal 24-hour day. So in that 24-hour day, and really this is almost becomes an idiom in the day, almost becomes an idiom for when. In other words, at the moment that you do something. So when God says, in the day that you eat that, idiomatically it means the instant that you eat from this, something is going to happen. Now what is going to happen? Notice he doesn't say something is going to begin to happen. It's not an ingressive sense. It is in that day, when you do this. And then you have an interesting construction in the Hebrew. First, you have, you have a repetition of the verb. You ha- it looks like this in the Hebrew. Mot tamut. This word, M-O-T, is a cal infinitive absolute. This, here's your root right here, is tamut, which is the um, second person plural, or second person singular, cal, second person singular, the cal imperfect of the same word, same root, mot. So, you have the doubling of the verb, and the verb means to die. Now, I remember when I was growing up, I was taught that the way to translate this, and you were taught this too, is dying, you shall die. Now, if you know anything about grammar, you know that this is 
with the ing ending is either a gerundive or a participle. What is this? It's an infinitive. A participle is not an infinitive, and an infinitive is not a participle. That's point number one that we have to pay attention to to clarify this. I remember when I went to seminary, even Dr. Unger, who taught at Dallas Seminary, taught Hebrew at Dallas Seminary, translated this way. Dr. Chafer translated it that way. But there's not a single Hebrew grammar, and I was a Hebrew major at Dallas Seminary for my master's work. There's not a single Hebrew grammar anywhere that supports this translation. Period. It doesn't work. And I want to go into detail on this. I've done this before, but because of the fact that we've been taught this, we have to look at the details as to why it's not exactly precise in order to make the correct interpretation of the passage. There are a number of other passages in the Scripture that use this same phraseology. If dying you will die, and the way that's normally handled is dying is um, spiritual death, you will die physically, indicating that first you die spiritually and then you die physically. Now that's true, but the question is, is that what this phrase indicates? Is he talking about two different kinds of death here? Numbers 15.35 Then the Lord says to Moses, and this is a death sentence, remember this, the Bible not only authorizes but supports the death penalty. The Lord said to Moses, The man shall, this is how they translate it, shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. Now the phrase we want to look at is that phrase, The man shall surely be put to death. What do we have? You have a cal infinitive absolute of moat, plus a hafal, not a cal stem, plus a hafal imperfect. It's the same syntax. It's the same grammar using the same verb. But if you're going to execute somebody for a capital crime, you would not say at that point you shall certainly dying him so that he shall die. That doesn't make sense, does it? What you're saying is emphasis, and that's the point every grammar makes of a cow infinitive absolute plus a perfect tense verb or an imperfect tense verb is for emphasis, for certainty, for surety, that at the moment this happens, this will certainly die. You shall certainly, absolutely, at the moment that you find him guilty, put him to death. Genesis 26.11, you have the same phrase. This happens after Abimelech, the, the, uh, had, uh, who was one of the Philistine leaders, had been deceived by Abraham that Sarah wasn't really his wife but his sister. And after Abimelech discovered the fraud, he warns the people and said, He who touches this man, that is Abraham, or his wife, shall surely be put to death. And there we have the same phrase, the same verb. You have a cow infinitive absolute plus a hafal imperfect. If, and, and it's to emphasize certainty. Abimelech is not saying he who touches this man or his wife dying will die. He's not saying that. He's saying he who touches this man or his wife will certainly die. Genesis 18.10. Now we have a different word, but we have the same syntactical construction. And he said, I will surely return to you at this same time next year. And it's the Lord talking, and he uses the Cal infinitive absolute of shuv to return 
plus the calp imperfect to emphasize that I will definitely, certainly return at this same time next year. You can count on it. Genesis 22.17, God speaking to Abraham says, Indeed, I will greatly bless you. There we have a PL infinitive absolute plus a PL imperfect meaning the, of Barak, meaning to bless. I will certainly bless you, not blessing you. I will bless you. Have I made the point? This is not legitimate. According to the grammars, for example, Walkie and O'Connor, the significance of the infinitive absolute is to emphasize not the meaning denoted by the verb's root, which would be death in this case, but the force of the verb in context. When the verb makes an assertion that you will die... Whatever its aspect, the notion of certainty is reinforced by the infinitive. When the verb stem is an imperfect, the infinitive absolute emphasizes that a situation will definitely take place. That's why grammar is important. So what God is saying is, first of all, in the day or when, in that moment that you eat, you will definitely die. Now, what happened when Adam ate from the fruit? He didn't die physically, did he? He was separated from God so that when God came to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve before the fall, and God said, Adam, where are you hiding? God knew. He wanted Adam to recognize that he, the point that he was running away from God. The point is that Adam had, was separated by God because now Adam had lost perfect righteousness and could no longer have fellowship with God, so that there was a separation that occurred. Adam was still alive physically, but he had died spiritually, so that there was a break in his relationship with God. So the penalty for sin, then, is spiritual death. That's the whole point I want you to understand. I wanted to go through the details because they're important, because some of you ask questions on that. But the important thing here is that the penalty for sin is not physical death. The penalty for sin is spiritual death. And because Adam died spiritually, there were consequences in the entire realm of nature and creation. Part of it was that the serpent now crawled instead of crawled on scuts instead of walking. There is thorns and thistles. The land is antagonistic to man who's trying to farm it. All of this is the consequence. Every category of death, from physical death to sexual death, temporal death, carnal death, every category of death talked about in the Scripture is the consequence of spiritual death. If you didn't have spiritual death, you wouldn't have any of the other kinds of death. Spiritual death is the root issue. That is the penalty for sin, not physical death. So what we see here, point number two, is that there are two categories then of death for this discussion. Physical death, spiritual death. And spiritual death itself has two categories. There is real spiritual death, which is the death that Adam and all of his descendants experience. We are truly separated from God the Father because we lack righteousness. And then there will be 
the substitutionary spiritual death of Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, where we are headed with this is that Christ's death on the cross that counted for our salvation was not his physical death. Because physical death is not the penalty for sin. The penalty must be paid in kind. What paid the penalty was his spiritual death when he was separated from God the Father between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when the earth was covered in darkness and God the Father imputed to the Son every single sin committed in human history, including all of your sins. Every single one of them. Point number three. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, the entire human race entered into spiritual death. At that instant, when Adam sinned because he was our representative, and the thing is, God in his omniscience knows that what Adam did, every one of us would do. Placed in the same circumstances. Now, don't get arrogant and say, I would know better. No, you wouldn't. You would do the same thing. God knew that. Romans 5.12 says, For by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. That means that every single one of us have sinned. So there are seven results of Adam's original sin in the garden. Seven results. First of all, the instant that Adam sinned, he died spiritually. Man was created trichotomous, three parts. Body, soul, spirit. I had an interesting conversation one day this week on the, on the phone. A pastor over in Ohio called me and we were talking about several things and we got off onto this as well as uh, I think I was talking with Dan. Dan's down in uh, going to Capitol Seminary taking an anthropology, biblical anthropology course. Traditionally, theologians talk about dichotomy as being material and immaterial. But see, the immaterial part of man is what we call the soul. And the scripture clearly says that there's a distinction between soul and spirit, for the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharp. Into the dividing asunder, the what? The soul and the spirit. There's an overlap between the two. But man was originally created body, soul, and spirit, and it's the spirit that works like a hand in a glove with the soul. The spirit doesn't think on its own. The mentality is part of the soul. The volition is part of the soul, but the human spirit is that which works like a hand in a glove with the soul to provide the person a relationship with God. It is the human spirit that enables the person to have a relationship with God and to understand the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are what? Spiritually discerned. And there we have a very interesting word in the Greek. Sukikos. Sukikos. From the Greek word suke, meaning soul. Sukikos means soulish. It's absent a human spirit. Now how do we know that? Interesting verse, Jude 1.19. Jude 1.19 is translated 
horribly in your English Bible. In your English New American Standard, it says, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, and then they make an interpretive decision and capitalize Spirit as if it's the Holy Spirit. But if you look at the Greek, the word translated worldly-minded has nothing to do with cosmos at all. It's the Greek word psuchikos, soulish. These, and in most places, the New American Standard translates psuchikos as natural. But here it translates it worldly-minded, which is a bad interpretation. These are the ones who cause divisions, psuchikos. And then the next phrase in the Greek is literally not having a spirit. See, this is the point I'm making here. It, it, the unbeliever doesn't have a spirit. When Adam sinned, he lost his human spirit. He could no longer have a relationship with God. All he had was a body and a soul. And at regeneration, when you are born again, and you are made spiritually alive because you were spiritually dead, and I keep asking the question, like I did of this pastor in Ohio, I said, you talk about being spiritually dead, don't you? What is it that is dead if you do not believe in trichotomy? Silence. What is it that is becomes alive if the human spirit is not a separate immaterial substance? If you talk about being spiritually reborn, what is it that's reborn? Silence. You see, we talk about these terms, and you talk about them in the theological classroom, but it's amazing how many people don't define these concepts. You are spiritually reborn because God the Holy Spirit, the moment of salvation, creates in you a human and imparts to you a human spirit to which God imputes eternal life. Seven results of Adam's original sin. The first was that in the instant he sinned, he died spiritually and lost his human spirit. Secondly, in spiritual death, he became dichotomous, having only a body and soul, Jude one nineteen. Third, his original sin generated a sin nature which is then genetically passed on to the entire human race. Fourth, you sin because you have a sin nature. You sin because you're a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin. Fifth, the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the hypostatic union, and hypostatic union refers to the union of undiminished deity in true humanity, in one person forever, from the Greek word hypostasis, meaning substance, the true substance of undiminished deity, the true substance of humanity, united together in one person forever, is the direct result of Adam's original sin because only a man can die for man. God could not die for man. This was one of the major arguments that Athanasius used in the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea. Those of you who grew up in a creedal church where you recited the Nicene Creed, that's where that came from. Athanasius was the bishop of of, uh, Alexandria in North Africa, and he argued strongly, that's where they hammered out the doctrine of the hypostatic union, that Jesus Christ had to be fully man because only a man could die for humanity. He had to be true humanity. So the fifth result is the incarnation of, of, uh, of Jesus Christ. I guess I said seven. There are only five results that I have listed. Okay. 
Third point was five results of Adam's original sin in the garden. Point number four. In rightly dividing the word of truth, which means to correctly interpret the Bible, we must recognize that for the penalty of sin to be paid, it must be paid in kind. A physical death does not pay the penalty for spiritual death. Therefore, the substitutionary death of our Lord must refer to a spiritual death and not a physical death. So point four is the death must be paid in kind, spiritual death for spiritual death. Point five. To understand the atonement, we must define the meaning of atonement. Atonement is a word that's used in the Old Testament, but it's not used in the New Testament. Atonement is a summary term that describes all that was accomplished by the death of Christ on the cross. Atonement describes all that was accomplished by the death of Christ on the cross, including the need, the nature, the focus, the means, and the extent of that death. Let me say that again. It describes all that was accomplished by the death of Christ on the cross, including the need, the nature, the focus the means, and the extent of that death. So let's break it down. Point number six, the need for the atonement. Why was there a need for the atonement? Why was it necessary for Christ to go to the cross? The need is the character of God. God is perfect righteousness. Use a plus R there to symbolize the perfect righteousness of God. This is absolute, absolute perfection. God is righteous, perfect righteousness, and He cannot have fellowship with any creature that is less than perfection. This is the standard of God's character. If you don't meet His standard, you can't have a relationship with Him. Then there is the justice of God. The justice of God is the application of that standard. And because God is perfect, His justice is perfect, and He is perfectly fair. So what the righteousness of God demands in terms of the standard, the justice of God executes or applies. But the love of God in eternity past initiated a solution based on the grace of God. Now what happened at the fall? What happened at the fall is... Initially, Adam was created plus R. He was perfect. He was created, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, in the image and likeness of God. So because God is a perfect God, He could create nothing less than perfection, so He created a perfect Adam. But when Adam sinned, he lost it. He became minus R. So what the righteousness of God rejects, because it doesn't meet the standard, the justice of God condemns. So the righteousness of God rejected Adam... And the justice of God therefore condemned Adam. But, remember the rest of the equation. The love of God had initiated a solution. It is the redemption solution that was based on the grace of God. God knew what man's problem would be from eternity past. Billions and billions of eons before, God the Father knew that Adam would sin and that the only solution must be provided by God that man would be totally helpless and could do absolutely nothing to ever reach the level of absolute perfection because of all that would happen as a result of sin. 
So God the Father devised a perfect plan. He knew that His Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, had plus R. And Jesus Christ volunteered to go to the cross. And at the cross, He would pay the penalty as a substitute. He would pay the penalty as a substitute for mankind so that all the sins of mankind would be poured forth on Jesus Christ. And then man, who is over here minus R, when you believe in Jesus Christ, then God takes the perfect righteousness of Christ and gives it to you, imputes it to you, and that substitutes for your negative righteousness. So see, it's not your negative righteousness that's the issue anymore. That was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. The issue is now the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when you trusted Christ as your Savior, God the Father imputed to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so when the perfect righteousness of Christ, of God, looks on you, the standard is met. So what the righteousness of God accepts, the justice of God blesses. So that the justice of God now can bless you, not because of who you are or what you have done, but because of who Jesus Christ is and what He did on the cross. He, his sins, Your sins went on Him as your substitute, so His righteousness now substitutes for your lack of righteousness. So the need for the atonement is the character of God, point number six. Point number seven, the nature of the atonement is substitutionary. Substitutionary. Now this is seen in the Old Testament in the sacrifices. They would bring the lamb without spot or blemish. Who is that representative of? That it represents Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came to John the Baptist, we saw in John chapter 1, He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When when you would come as a Jewish believer in the Old Testament, you would bring a lamb to the priest and the lamb would be placed upon the altar, and you would take your hand and put it on the lamb's head, and you would recite your sins. And your sins are now being transferred from you to that lamb as your substitute. And then the lamb's throat was cut, and he spurted blood all over the place, which is a horrible thing, but it should remind you of the horror of sin in God's eyes. And there was that transference. So the sacrificial system focused on substitution at its very core. That this lamb without spot or blemish, this innocent lamb, took your place. This is seen in Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, literally carried. He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through... For our transgressions, same emphasis of substitution. He was pierced through as a substitute for our transgressions. He was crushed as a substitute for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. 
And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The impeccability of Christ. He was a perfect substitute. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Now this is emphasized still in the New Testament. In Greek prepositions you have We've already mentioned who pair, but you have anti, A-N-T-I, which in every single usage in known literature means substitution in place of, as a substitute for. It is not debatable. Anti means that Jesus died. He said, I came in Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many, as a substitute for many. Auntie. Then you have the preposition pair. Both take the genitive of advantage. H-U-P-E-R. And that means substitution. And there we have in our passage, I am the Good Shepherd, The good shepherd lays down his life as a substitute for the sheep. Now, notice how we learn things often by contrast. We not only sometimes need to be told what something is positively, but sometimes it has to be contrasted with what is wrong. Jesus uses this very technique here in John 10. He says, I'm the good shepherd. Now, let's contrast what a good shepherd does with what the hireling does. And then you'll get the point even more clearly. Well, there are several false views of the atonement. One is called the moral view. The moral view was first articulated by a priest in the Middle Ages by the name of Abelard. Abelard is more famous for his romantic tryst with Eloise. Her brothers got a little exacerbated with him and his affections. So they emasculated him. Abelard was one of the most famous thinkers of the Middle Ages. I guess after that, that's what he had to devote himself to. But he was a heretic nonetheless. He put forth a view of the atonement that was called the moral view. And basically it was that Christ's death simply demonstrated how much God loved us and how dedicated Christ was to the plan of God. And so Christ's death is an example to us of God's great love. And by looking to the cross, we see God's love revealed, and that should encourage us to love other people and no longer live in selfishness and sin. See, earlier, Anselm, Bishop of Canterbury, had first articulated the substitutionary view, and Abelard rejected that. And this is the major view of all the liberal denominations. They've all adopted this heretical moral view of the atonement, that it's just an example for us. It's not really a payment for sin. And then there is the what is called the Grotian view, because it was named for Hugo Grotius. It's called the governmental view. It's very similar. And the only reason I throw that out there is because this was the view that was adopted by a 19th century evangelist by the name of Charles Grandison Finney. Finney's theology is the foundation of much 
Wesleyan theology, holiness theology, and Pentecostal theology. And it has been a bane to Christianity in America ever since the early 19th century. Because in, in the Grodian view, it's very similar to the moral view. It's just an example of God's government. But there's no substitution. And at the core, you see, we must understand, theology is an integrated whole. It's like they call it a seamless garment. You change one part, you change other parts. You change your view of the atonement, and the root of the moral view and the Grodian view is that sin isn't really that bad. Man is not that inherently sinful and is not bound to spiritual death. So no penalty really has to be paid. And see, this is the whole root of uh, Phineism and the danger of Phineism because it also led to perfectionism. The idea that you can be sinless. Well, if you have a low view of sin and you only think that sin consists in committing the nasty nine and if you don't commit the nasty nine, then you're sinless. It's real easy to have a low view of sin then you don't really understand God. It reduces your view of God. It reduces your view of the atonement. And now your salvation is not nearly as significant. Point number eight. The focus of the atonement is towards God. In the early church, they they put forth a view called the ransom to Satan view. That Christ paid paid a price, but He was paying it to Satan. And that was completely heretical. And I just wanted to mention that. Because the focus of the atonement is the satisfaction of God's righteous demands. and has nothing to do with Satan. We're not born in bondage to Satan. We're born in bondage to sin. And point number nine, the means of the atonement is the spiritual death of Christ on the cross. He died as our substitute spiritually. 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. And the reason Peter says that, and he quotes it from Isaiah 53, is to counteract the view that Jesus was just sort of uh, an immaterial ghost. He never really... That was called docetism in the early church. And And he's emphasizing that there was a physical body on the cross, and He bore our sins in His body, but it is not His physical death. Why? Because when Jesus had finished, when those three hours were up, it was then that He said, it is finished. He said it is finished before He died physically. Point number ten, the extent of the atonement is to all men. It's not just to believers. You see, one of the illegitimate ways in which John 10 is interpreted is when Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd, the Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. There are those who will make that say that He just died for the sheep who are the believers, he didn't die for unbelievers. But this contradicts clear teaching of Scripture. 1 John 2, 2, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 2 Corinthians 5:15, And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. 1 Timothy 4:10, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. 1 Timothy 2.4-6 Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all. Now, back to John 10. Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. 
the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In contrast to the legalistic religious leaders who are nothing more than hirelings, they have nothing at stake, they don't care about the sheep, and so when they are threatened, they will run. Jesus twice articulated the fact that he was the door, and now twice he says he is the good shepherd. He repeats it in verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. And here we are reminded of the analogy with the shepherd, that the shepherd would come into to the area and pin his sheep, and maybe four or five different flocks would be housed together in one sheepfold. And the next morning when a shepherd would come back, he would go through the, the, these mixed flocks and he had a call. And he would, each shepherd had his own call. Each call was unique to that shepherd. And the sheep would hear that call and then they would follow the shepherd out of the pen. The other sheep would stay there, but his sheep would follow him. And Jesus is saying that he gave the call to the believer, to the blind man at the end of John 9. The call was, do you believe in the Son of Man? And that, that blind man believed. He responded to the call and he followed the shepherd. That's what Jesus is saying. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. I gave him the gospel and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father and lay down my life for the sheep. Now, this is an important verse for the Trinity, but we're going to get into that in the next section. So I'm going to delay our uh, exposition of this until we get into the next section, the relationship of God the Son to God the Father. Verse 16, And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. What's his point? His point is that these sheep are Israel, but I have other sheep that are not Israel, that are Gentiles. I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock. This is, an, this is a very cryptic prophecy of the church. They will become one flock with one shepherd. And this hints to what is later revealed as mystery doctrine that there is in the church neither Jew nor Greek. We are all one in Christ. And then verse 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. And this goes right in the face of all those who want to blame the Jews for the death of Christ. The Jews did not kill Jesus. The Romans did not kill Jesus. Jesus went to the cross willingly. He had a plan to fulfill. He had to accomplish the Father's plan of substitutionary atonement for the human race. He said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. It's His volition, that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Now, one point that is interesting to note, when Christ is on the cross during those three hours, He grew incredibly thirsty. Crucifixion is a very painful death, and the Romans had perfected it to an art form so that somebody could stay on, they could keep somebody alive on the cross for three or four days. And one of the things they would offer them was sort of a vinegar-myrrh mixture that was uh, a slight anesthetic. And they would offer this to Jesus, and He refused it. He did not take it until after the three hours on the cross were over with. 
Why didn't Jesus take the anesthetic during those three hours? Because it would have dulled his senses. He had to think. Because during those three hours on the cross, Jesus Christ was thinking. A massive cray computer could not compute what was going on in his mind during those three hours. He's thinking about every single sin committed by every single believer through human history. He can't dull his senses. He's thinking. And during those three hours, his mind went through every single sin in human history, categorized it, cataloged it, and paid for it so that it's no longer an issue. The issue is not your sin. The issue is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Now, of course, whenever you say that, it immediately divides people, and it did at that time. And this is the point, that the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it, and the darkness loved, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light. And look at what happens in their reaction in 19 through 22. Immediately there arose a division again among the Jews because of these words, and many of them were saying, immediate division, Half of them are saying, he has a demon and he's insane. Why do you listen to him? And the others are saying, this few that are positive who responded to the light. These are not the sayings of someone who's demon-possessed. A demon can't open the eyes of the blind, can he? What does that do? That takes us right back to the whole theme. That Jesus is the light of the world. That if we follow him, That is, understand what he has revealed in his word, that is the whole Bible called the mind of Christ, then you will not walk in darkness, but you will walk in light. And the issue is your volition. Will you be here for Bible class to study the word of God so that your thinking can be illuminated by truth, which is what is powerful and can defeat anything in your life? Or are you going to be distracted by the other issues in life? with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for Your Word, for the clarity of it. We thank You that we have so much in Scripture that every issue in life, every topic, every category is addressed from Your Word. And that You have told us in Your Word that it is in Your light, that is, in the light of Your revelation, that we can see the truth, the light of every other issue in life. But we must start by presupposing the truth of your word, which means that we must know it. We must know it inside and out. We must let our thinking be completely renovated by the Bible doctrine that you have revealed to us in your word. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things. Father, we pray that if there is anyone here who is without hope, without eternal life, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that right now they would take the opportunity to make that certain. All you have to do is say, Father... I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Just forming the words in thought alone, just utter a quick, silent prayer, telling the Father that you accept the free gift of salvation. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. You don't have to reform your life. You don't have to go to church. All you have to do is accept that free gift. Father, we pray that you would continue to challenge us with the things that we have learned today. In Jesus' precious name, amen.